This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of men. You are the Renaissance. Hello, my name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to Poetry for Men, part of the Renaissance of Men podcast. In the previous episode, I explained how for the next little while, we're going to be taking a trip back in time to earlier days of English poetry. We began in the early 1600s with George Herbert's poem, The Caller. Today, we're going to take a baby step forward in time to another English poet, Andrew Marvell. This poem also comes from Harold Bloom's book, The Best Poems of the English Language. And as a matter of fact, I think you're going to like it very much. The poem is somewhat simpler thematically than some of the other work I've covered. But again, like all great art, it speaks to timeless human experiences. And in this case, the poem speaks to an all-too-familiar experience of being a man, which, along with its beautiful imagery, is probably why references to this poem have cropped up time and again in many different places across the centuries. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Andrew Marvell was born in 1621 as the son of a clergyman. He was educated at Trinity College in Cambridge and toured continental Europe in his 20s, picking up Dutch, French, Italian, and Spanish along the way. He also worked closely with the poet John Milton, celebrated author of Paradise Lost, and this is where things begin to get interesting. And once again, a bit of a history lesson is in order. In the episode on George Herbert, we talked about the tumultuous times he was born into in the late 1500s, as the Christian faith fractured from Catholicism into Protestantism in Europe and Anglicanism in England. In Andrew Marvell's time, England was going through a similar period of struggle as it began a rough and unsuccessful transition from monarchy into republicanism or representative democracy. And perhaps now you can see how even back in the 1600s, the foundations were being laid for our world today. In Europe, human consciousness was emerging from the so-called Dark Ages, characterized by the political monarchy of kings and the religious monarchy of popes into governments and faiths more reflective of the common people. Now, please forgive me because I'm going to compress an important era of British history into a few short paragraphs to set the context so we can better understand Marvell in today's poem. In England in 1639, the Wars of the Three Kingdoms began, also known as the British Civil Wars. Whereas previous wars in England were about who should govern, these wars were over how England should be governed. The wars were between two factions. On one hand, the Royalists, or Cavaliers, stood in support of the absolute power of the monarchy. On the other, the parliamentarians, or roundheads, believed that the king or queen should be constrained by a constitution, effectively making the monarch subservient to parliament. And since I know you're wondering, the terms cavalier and roundhead both began as insults. The parliamentarians were mocking the royalists' fashionable style of courtly dress, and the royalists, who wore their hair in ringlets, were mocking the parliamentarians' habit of cutting their hair short. Both groups subsequently adopted their own pejoratives and used them as their formal names. Well done, guys. The primary dispute between the two groups began over, as is so common throughout history, taxes and religious freedom. 
The first physical battles took place in the First English Civil War between 1642 and 1646. The second civil war was from 1648 to 49, and the third was from 1649 to 1651. During the First English Civil War, the ruling monarch King Charles I was defeated. In 1649, he was executed, and his son Charles II was exiled. Following that time, the man Oliver Cromwell, whose name you might recognize from high school history class, became Lord Protector of the Realm. But following Cromwell's death in 1658, King Charles II returned and was restored to the throne. The 11 years following King Charles I's execution in 1649 became known as the Interregnum, combining the words inter, or between, and regnum, or kingship, the era between kingships. And the era following Charles II's return to the throne in 1660 became known as the Restoration. So if you ever see a British period movie set during the Restoration era, such as Johnny Depp's The Libertine or Robert Downey Jr.'s Restoration, this is the era that they're talking about. But a funny thing happened during this time. Despite the return of King Charles to the throne, the monarchy would never be the same. Today, England maintains an uneasy cultural alliance between royalists and parliamentarians. The parliamentary government makes all the decisions, but still serves at the pleasure of the queen. The distinction is largely ceremonial, though not always comfortable. And it was at the time of the English Civil War, the Interregnum, and the Restoration, that England had crossed this unrecrossable threshold from monarchy into parliament and began to change slowly as a result. Which brings us back to Andrew Marvell. He lived from 1621 until 1678, just 57 years. And the War of the Three Kingdoms lasted from when he was 18 years old until when he was 39, right through the main phase of his adulthood. Which is why the Poetry Foundation website opens its extensive essay about him with the following words, quote, Andrew Marvell is surely the single most compelling embodiment of the change that came over English society and letters in the course of the 17th century. Because Marvell began his career as a cavalier and a metaphysical poet, writing in a lyrical and philosophical mode, Harold Bloom himself says, quote, Eminently a thinker and imaginer for himself, Marvell is at once original and curiously central, so that he cannot be regarded as less than a major poet of an eminence equal to John Donne's, Ben Jonson's, or George Herbert's. So why don't we hear more about him, especially given that the poem I'm about to read is so widely referenced, as we'll see. Anyone who studied literature a little bit knows the names of John Donne and Ben Jonson. Well, as Harold Bloom continues, quote, Marvell is the most enigmatic, unclassifiable, and unaffiliated major poet in the language. In other words, Andrew Marvell is a poet's poet, and thus quite difficult to pin down. The picture is even more complicated, because as England crossed the threshold of the interregnum, Marvell did as well. He went through his own transformation, from a complex and lyrical poet and cavalier, into an orator and even tutor for Cromwell during the interregnum, making Marvell solidly a roundhead. After this period, during the Restoration, Marvell became a successful, though bitter, satirist of royalty, anticipating later writers like Jonathan Swift. This is a curious change. The Poetry Foundation says, quote, It is as if the most delicate and elusive of butterflies somehow metamorphosed into a caterpillar. This transformation didn't even make itself known until after Marvell's death, which is when his poems were published. Though he died in 1678, his first book of poetry was released three years later from a collection owned by one Mary Palmer, his housekeeper of all people. In fact, she claimed to have been Mary Marvell 
and that they married in secret, but historians have been unable to verify her claim. Marvell's poetry influenced other artists through the ages, but it was an essay by the great T.S. Eliot in 1921 that finally cemented Marvell's reputation among the pantheon of greats. Eliot writes, quote, The quality which Marvell had, this modest and certainly impersonal virtue, whether we call it wit or reason or even urbanity, we have patently failed to define. By whatever name we call it, and however we define that name, it is something precious and needed and apparently extinct. It is what should preserve the reputation of Marvell. As you can probably tell, the format of this podcast doesn't quite allow me to do justice to Marvell's life and legacy, at least not in the way I'd like. It would take a survey of several poems and essays to paint an appropriate picture of the man, his art, and his influence. However, I can give you a sense of his skill and where he began as a poet and the hopes that it might inspire a sense of curiosity in you to see where he ended up. The poem I'm about to read is considered one of his masterworks and the finest example of his lyrical, metaphysical style. Though all of his poems were published together after his death, it's likely that this one was written during the interregnum or slightly before. It harkens to a more innocent time and age, something I think we could all use right now. This is To His Coy Mistress by Andrew Marvell. Had we but world enough and time, this coyness lady were no crime. We would sit down and think which way to walk and pass our long love's day. Thou by the Indian Ganges side shouldst rubies find. I by the tide of Humber would complain. I would love you ten years before the flood, and you should, if you please, refuse till the conversion of the Jews. My vegetable love should grow vaster than empires and more slow. An hundred years should go to praise thine eyes and on thy forehead gaze. Two hundred to adore each breast, but thirty thousand to the rest, an age at least to every part, and the last age should show your heart. For, lady, you deserve this state, nor would I love at a lower rate. But at my back I always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near, and yonder all before us lie deserts of vast eternity. Thy beauty shall no more be found, nor in thy marble vault shall sound my echoing song. Then worms shall try that long-preserved virginity and your quaint honor turn to dust, and into ashes all my lust. The grave's a fine and private place, but none, I think, do there embrace. Now, therefore, while the youthful hue sits on thy skin like morning dew, and while thy willing soul transpires at every pore with instant fires, now let us sport us while we may, and now, like amorous birds of prey, rather at once our time devour than languish in his slow-chapped power. Let us roll all our strength and all our sweetness up into one ball and tear our pleasures with rough strife through the iron gates of life. Thus, though we cannot make our son stand still, yet we will make him run. I love this poem. And frankly, what man doesn't know this feeling? You're with a woman and you kind of want to take the next step and she's kind of hesitant and you somehow have to come up with the moves to get her to agree to do what you kind of both want to do anyway. It's classic, and given that this poem was written sometime in the 1640s, that shows how timeless the scenario is. Just two examples that I can think of during this century alone that replicate the situation in their own way are Baby It's Cold Outside, the once adorable Christmas tune turned annual SJW rage trigger, and also Paradise by the Dashboard Light, 
by the 70s rock opera artist Meatloaf. I'm always surprised by how many people don't know Meatloaf these days, but for those of you who've seen the movie Fight Club, the actor who plays Robert Paulson, as in his name was Robert Paulson, was once a rock star, and his first big hit, Paradise by the Dashboard Light, is a story of, well, trying to get some, and what happens afterwards. I'll put a link in the show notes because the music, lyrics, singing, and narrative are incredible. I wish more music today had such a refined sense of story, drama, and humor. So you can see that both Meatloaf and Ricardo Montalban share in the same timeless tradition of Andrew Marvell, and probably every man listening to this right now who's grinning to himself remembering that one time he talked a girl into, shall we say, a longer encounter. And to the women listening, maybe you've been happily talked into one or two as well. So let's all share a smile together while we dig into this poem, and afterwards we'll see how there's a few more timeless elements to this work than just the situation. First, the poem falls under a category of poetry called carpe diem, which as we probably all know is Latin for seize the day, a term coined by the ancient Roman poet Horace. And that's essentially the content of what Marvell is trying to say to his coy mistress, that they should seize the day and get it on. Oh, and by the way, despite the fact that this was written 400 years ago and that contemporary scholars have tried to make it into a metaphor for other things, I think it's pretty clear that this poem is what it says it is, a masculine man with an artistic gift using his gift to get laid. Only a dried-up postmodernist college professor who'd last seen his testicles in the 1980s could claim otherwise, and many have tried. And let me tell you, the online analyses of this poem are absolutely joyless. Here, I'll read you one. Quote, The young man is impatient, desperately so, unwilling to tolerate temporizing on the part of the young lady. His motivation appears to be carnal desire rather than true love. Passion rules him. Consequently, one may describe him as immature and selfish. That seems a pretty striking judgment. Because for all we know, though his mistress is coy, she may not herself be lacking desire for such an encounter. And since when did people only have sex in the spirit of true love? I could go on and on about this, but surely some of the men listening will recognize a familiar and socially acceptable form of sexism in this analysis. It's particularly reflective of our modern era, and obviously I don't share it. So, Marvell, or the character he's created, is trying to carpe diem a woman out of her knickers. Good for him. But he doesn't just come out and say it. He structures his poetic argument in three sections. If, but, therefore. If is the first section. Quote, had we but world enough and time, this coyness lady were no crime. Then there's a second section. But at my back I always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near. And finally the third section. Now, therefore, while the youthful hue sits on thy skin like morning dew, and while thy willing soul transpires at every pore with instant fires, now let us sport us while we may. You can hear the carpe diem, I think. If we had time, babe, we could take forever, but someday we'll both be dead. So while we're alive, young, and in the full force of our powers, let's enjoy ourselves. And personally, I think he pulls it off. Pun intended. Let's see why. First, the poem was written in meter, as you can hear. It's an iambic quatrameter, so four metrical feet of unstressed and stressed syllables. To me, that creates a sort of breezy, cheeky, lighthearted feeling versus a sonnet from Shakespeare that's written in iambic tetrameter. Here are a few lines of the bard, just for contrast. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. 
Hopefully you can feel the difference that one metrical foot makes in the weight of the lines. And surely language and grammar plays a role in this too, with Shakespeare's being a bit more Shakespearean, right? But still, in the pace of Marvell's lines, there's a sense of sport, of his charm, rather than an intellectual and capital P poetic force. Here's an example. An hundred years should go to praise thine eyes and on thy forehead gaze. Two hundred to adore each breast, but thirty thousand to the rest. An age at least to every part, and the last age should show your heart. For lady, you deserve this state, nor would I love at lower rate. Though Shakespeare and Marvell are both talking to women, one might say that Marvell is trying to woo her, and Shakespeare is trying to wow her. Very different. And part of that is because of Marvell's sense of urgency. He's trying to take advantage of this moment to generate momentum to an inevitable <clears throat> climax, and the poem is structured logically, if, but, therefore, and rhythmically around that goal. This is a major campaign with a man's full powers of persuasion. Gentlemen, I hope you're paying attention. So with George Herbert's poem, The Caller, I talked about what his mind, heart, body, and spirit were saying through the words, and I'd like to take the same approach here, but not with what Marvell is saying so much as how his coy mistress might be hearing it. Again, if, but, therefore is a logical argument and is therefore speaking to her mind. The breathless rhythm in the meter is speaking to her pulse and in a way to her body. And so now what about her heart, as in her emotional center and her spirit? Marvell takes an instructive approach to her heart center and leads with flattery. Again, an hundred years should go to praise thine eyes and on thy forehead gaze. Two hundred to adore each breast, but thirty thousand to the rest. An age at least to every part, and the last age should show your heart. He's essentially saying, babe, you're so beautiful, I could spend lifetimes adoring every piece of you. Or in the words of the contemporary American poet John Mayer, your body is a wonderland. Who wouldn't want to be spoken to that way? Pretty classic guy move. And then in the lines just prior, Marvell is talking about the Indian Ganges and rubies and passing long love's day. There's a feeling of ease here. He's lulled her into a sense of security. Relax, babe, while I flatter you. Then there's a turn in the butt section to a darker tone. But at my back, I always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near. And yonder all before us lie deserts of vast eternity. Thy beauty shall no more be found, nor in thy marble vault shall sound my echoing song. Then worms shall try that long-preserved virginity, and your quaint honor turn to dust, and into ashes all my lust. The grave's a fine and private place, but none, I think, do there embrace. Look at the imagery. Time's winged chariot, deserts of vast eternity, marble vaults or mausoleums, honor turning to dust, ashes, and the grave. As idyllic as the previous section was, these lines are shocking in their vivid imagery about death, almost to an intimidating degree. He's not necessarily wrong about any of it, but it's kind of a downer. You can imagine that in the first section, his coy mistress' face is lighting up with the attention. But then in the second section, you can almost feel her smile fading, wondering, where is this going? Again, this is all still playing on her heart. It's quite skillful rhetorically. Pleasure and fear are powerfully motivating factors. But of course, it's all just a setup for the therefore section. And here the tone shifts to one of power and glory, and we begin to feel the carpe diem come into play. Now, therefore, while the youthful hue sits on thy skin like morning dew, and while thy willing soul transpires at every pore with instant fires, now let us sport us while we may, 
And now, like amorous birds of prey, rather at once our time devour than languish in the slow-chapped power. Let us roll all our strength and all our sweetness up into one ball and tear our pleasures with rough strife through the iron gates of life. Thus, though we cannot make our sons stand still, yet we will make him run. Youthful skin, willing soul, instant fires, amorous birds of prey, devouring all our strength and sweetness, tearing our pleasures with rough strife, bursting through the iron gates of life, and then the coup de grace, thus, though we cannot make our son stand still, yet we will make him run. Imagine what he's promising, amorous birds of prey devouring each other, tearing pleasures with rough strife through the iron gates of life and an experience so powerful as to chase off the sun. I don't know, guys. I think he scored. What a moving appeal to the spirit of lust, youth, passion, energy, and the moment. Carpe diem, indeed. Or at least, carpe me. So we've covered his coy mistress' mind, which is addressed in the structure of the poem. There's her heartbeat or her body in the meter. Then there's her emotions and the flattering content, and finally her spirit and the moving encouragement to seize the day. But there's one more detail you might have noticed. One more uh, piece of her he's appealing to, and three subtle lines that you might not have caught. My vegetable love shall grow. Then worms shall try that long-preserved virginity. And let us roll all our strength and all our sweetness up into one ball. We're all adults here, I hope. I think we know what levels these lines are working on. And he just slips those lines in there so effortlessly, too. So I hope you can see now that beneath the surface of what might seem like a fairly simple poem, some complex rhetoric is swimming in the depths. That makes sense because this poem was regarded as one of his masterworks. The best poem of a poet's poet is really saying something. As a result, this poem has achieved a life of its own. Yes, there have been a couple authors who have written rejoinders to Marvell, including one by A.D. Hope entitled His Coy Mistress to Mr. Marvell, in which the mistress rejects Marvell's advances and all but throws a drink in his face. The poem was written by a man. Coming to the defense of a fictional character in a poem from 400 years ago has got to be the most epic white knight move I can imagine. Thankfully, other authors have treated the material with more respect. The work has been referenced by Robert Penn Warren, Ursula K. Le Guin, Joe Haldeman, Sir Terry Pratchett, B.F. Skinner, Arthur C. Clarke, Stephen King in the book Pet Cemetery, William S. Burroughs, Virginia Woolf, Ernest Hemingway, and finally by T.S. Eliot in his two famous works, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock and The Wasteland. So there, A.D. Hope. And the irony of all this? For all of its refinement, taste, tact, and artful skill of persuasion, as Howard Bloom notes, Marvell was a hard-drinking, hard-partying bachelor. You'd never know it to listen to him. When I decided to read this poem, I chose it because I thought it would be fairly simple and would be a nice break from the heavier material I've been reading lately. I've loved discovering how wrong I was. What a journey this has been for me to discover this timeless gem echoing across the centuries into my life, my culture, and my experience of being a man. And I hope yours too. Once again, this is To His Coy Mistress by Andrew Marvell. Had we but world enough and time, this coyness lady were no crime. We would sit down and think which way to walk and pass our long love's day. Thou by the Indian Ganges side shouldst rubies find. I by the tide of Humber would complain. 
I would love you 10 years before the flood, and you should, if you please, refuse till the conversion of the Jews. My vegetable love should grow vaster than empires and more slow, and hundred years should go to praise thine eyes and on thy forehead gaze. Two hundred to adore each breast, but thirty thousand to the rest, an age at least to every part, and the last age should show your heart. For, lady, you deserve this state, nor would I love at a lower rate. But at my back I always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near, and yonder all before us lie deserts of vast eternity. Thy beauty shall no more be found, nor in thy marble vault shall sound my echoing song. Then worms shall try that long-preserved virginity, and your quaint honor turn to dust, and into ashes all my lust. The graves of fine and private place, but none, I think, do there embrace. Now, therefore, while the youthful hue sits on thy skin like morning dew, and while thy willing soul transpires at every pore with instant fires, now let us sport us while we may, and now, like amorous birds of prey, rather at once our time devour than languish in his slow-chapped power. Let us roll all our strength and all our sweetness up into one ball, and tear our pleasures with rough strife through the iron gates of life. Thus, though we cannot make our sun stand still, yet we will make him run. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.